Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also he will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self and its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amazing. Thanks, Ariel. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you send your Holy Spirit now to illuminate our minds to your word? You've given us revelation. You've spoken. We have the text. We have Christ. Now would you breathe over us that we would be open afresh to how you would, how you would direct and guide and instruct and shape your church right now. In Jesus' name, amen. This is week nine of our 10-week vision series where we're talking about what it means to live as a community of Jesus apprentices right here in San Diego, 21st century. We're going to get into the text in a couple minutes, and we're going to walk through it. This will feed directly into our topic today. But here's the language we've been using. As apprentices of Jesus, we orient our lives around these three goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. In September, we looked at that first one, be with Jesus. Then October, we looked at what it, what it means to change and become like him. And now, we're looking at doing what Jesus did. And in this section, the first thing we talked about was praying. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. He was fully human and fully God, but no less human than we are. And that means that he depended on the Father in everything through prayer, so we do. That was the idea. And then we talked about how Jesus, central to Jesus' life and work, was the proclamation of the good news. And so that's what we talked about last week. Jesus saw his own life as fulfilling this gospel. <laughs> 
he, he preached the gospel and he acted as if he was the fulfillment of this announcement and he was the answer to all of the world's problems and the hope of your heart and our longings. So Jesus shows up on the scene announcing the good news of the kingdom, which this is gonna transition us to Colossians 3 today. So to get us there, I think it'd be helpful and really great actually for us to recap the last week with this four minute video that we have from the Bible Project. This was released barely a month ago and it's an amazing four minute, just quick summary of the intense massive good news of Jesus Christ, and it'll drop us right off into today's teaching. So let's check it out. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So, let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, biser is what we might call national news, or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger Biser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven and on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. 
Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. Yeah, so, yes. So we do what Jesus did as we proclaim that gospel. There's a new king in charge, and he has a people who live the way he does. And we live it out as his spirit-empowered community in San Diego uh, together, which brings us to Colossians 3. This chapter, we just read it with Ariel, it's all about how to live and worship in this new family. Uh, so today, here, here's, the, here's the actionable. This is it. Do what Jesus did, and it, and it boils down to forgive one another. Forgive one another. And what we're going to see is that this theme in the new family of Jesus, forgiveness and worship can't be separated. We cannot separate forgiveness and worship in this new family. They're two sides of the same coin. On my notes, I even have the title of the sermon, For forgiveness, equal sign, worship. Okay? And so that's what we're going to see. So let's walk through this text. Look at verse 1. Paul writes... Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who's your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, right there, you guys, this is like a big hinge moment. The door swings in Colossians on this verse. Before this, the first two chapters, the first half of the book, is Paul telling you the gospel. He's telling everybody that they are children of light, children of a new kingdom. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God's kingdom has come through Jesus and is still coming. God is ruling the world through his church right now, ahead of him returning in Jesus. And whoever believes this, whoever says yes to Jesus, actually becomes a child of light in this new family. And, and we get, quote unquote, saved. How many of you heard that phrase, get saved? No, no, no you never heard of getting saved? Cool. <laughs> So it's this idea of salvation, right? Salvation. But have you ever like wondered, what does that even mean? Like salvation. No one says that in language, English anymore. It's like an old English word or something. Um, it's easy for church people to forget the meanings of all these churchy words. So when you and I admit our need for forgiveness or for healing, then you and I admit that to God and we are somehow united with the Son. Union, union with Christ is how church history has called this. Made one 
with the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. And the idea here, guys, this is, this is the nugget of salvation. This is at the heart. That you and I, when we place our faith in Christ's work, we become united with Christ so that now we share in the relationship Christ has with his Father through the power of the Spirit. That's the inside of salvation. That's the beating heart in the center of the cardiovascular system that is this salvation thing that we have. It's union with Christ. It's literally all through the New Testament. Paul writes, in Christ, you in Christ, we in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is all through dozens upon dozens of times. If you're a follower of Jesus right now, that means you are united with Christ's own life and you actually share Jesus's identity within the relationship of the Trinity. So the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, has been around forever, loving one another. Do you realize the Trinity isn't just three detached persons that function as one in some way, and we just forget about it because it's too mysterious. The Trinity, God in three persons, is actually God in the love relationship between the three persons. That's where God exists. And so you and I, placing faith in Christ, have the mystical inexplicable privilege of being united with the second person of the Trinity and share in the relationship the Trinity has always been having. This is profound and so beautiful. This is why the New Testament talks about us. The primary metaphor is family. You guys were adopted by the Father. Christ is the rightful son, but you and I share in every bit of Christ's inheritance now which has so many implications. This is what we talked about last week. Because of union with Christ, can you put that list up? Oh my gosh, we move from guilt to innocence, chaos to shalom, fear to power, defile to clean. All those forms of sin get solved because of this union, that's why. All of that is grounded on the union that you and I are granted, that nothing can take away. It's a fact about you. You place your faith in Christ, the fact about you is that you're united with Christ. This is what Paul's been saying and celebrating for the whole first half of Colossians. And then the hinge, the hinge flies open and he gets very practical. He turns a corner and he says, since you're united with Christ, since you're in him, now think and act like it. Now think, next slide. He says, now think and act like it. Do you have that slide? I don't know if you do. There it is, right there. Timing is everything. Since you're in Christ, now you think and act like it. And to bring this home, Paul uses this metaphor of putting off the old life and putting on the new. And so we're going to go there. First, he talks about putting off the old nature. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. See this list. He just goes through this list of dehumanizing behavior that works against human flourishing. In verse eight, he says, uh, but, you, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. I love this, it's, a, it's like a paradox. He says, since you have taken off the old self in Christ, take it off. 
It's like, since you have, since it's a fact about you, become who you already are. You have the power now through the spirit. You have access to limitless heavenly treasures. So dig into them and become who you already are in Christ. And then verse 10, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here in this family, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So Paul's riffing off that crucifixion metaphor here. And he's saying, as followers of Jesus, since we are united with Christ, you guys, that means we get the benefit of his death. The old life is dead and nailed to the cross with Christ. And our new nature, having come out of the grave with Christ, united with him, we have access to resurrection power before our bodies are resurrected. <laughs> like right now, we have access to heaven's power. So he's like, so live into it. Like, act like it. This is that moment where he's like, okay, all this is true. Now access the truths. Live into it. And so he, he, he gives this short list. It's not an exhaustive list by any means, but it's a short list of dehumanizing sin. And he starts out with sexual immorality. I mean, that's not a word we use every day. It's like, hey, you know, have you been involved in any sexual morality lately? Or it's like, it's an archaic kind of word. Like, we don't normally use that in normal speech. Man, sexual morality. Um, it basically, in the scriptures, it's referring to sex with someone you are not married to. This is incompatible with the way of Jesus. So he's saying, put this off. It's actually dehumanizing, no matter how much culture frames love is love or whatever. Uh, it's dehumanizing, and he goes through other things. Impurity, lust. Lust is just objectifying another human being for purely selfish reasons. Uh, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, all of these things. It's, we're not going to get in the weeds and go through each one. The point is that they all spiral down into the bedrock of the old nature, which he lands on as lying. Deception. Verses 9 and 10. He talks about Lying, Do not lie to one another because you've put on the new self. And it's like Paul's saying, hey, you guys, lying is the nugget in the middle of the core of your old self. And nothing, and I'm saying this to, for us, nothing will divide and implode this family Jesus is building quite like lying and deception. Not just to others, but lying to yourself about yourself. So Park Hill Church, as the new family of Jesus, we are called to be a community of truth where the authentic, transparent, honest confession of sin can happen in an environment of trust and safety. Because without truth, there's no trust, right? And without trust, there's no relationship. Those of you that have been in an intimate relationship, you know this. Maybe you're married in the room. You know this is true. Like, an intimate relationship cannot exist outside an environment of trust. That's ground zero for intimacy. There's no intimacy without that ground zero. This is the kind of community Jesus is creating. We will always, fact is, we'll always be imperfect this side of the second coming when Jesus heals the world and heals us completely. We'll always be imperfect, which guess what? Um, until then, we'll always be wrestling with our sexuality and our lust and greed and our rage and our explosions and our anger and slander, you name it, we'll always be wrestling with these things. 
which means there will always be room for grace in this family. That's what that means. As we struggle, and as long as we honestly confess together, confess truthfully in an environment of trust. But without that truthfulness, if we're lying to ourselves and to each other, then there is no environment of trust for an authentic healing family to exist. And then, I mean, if we're not that kind of family, how dare we say we have, a, we have the hope San Diego needs for safety and intimacy and healing? Truthfulness is ground zero for becoming this new family of Jesus where people experience his healing presence. Everyone equally, everyone equally is invited to experience his presence here, which is why he ends with this. He says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, no class, uh, no classism or sexism that gets in the way, no favoritism that gets you in the way of direct access to the healing of Jesus. Christ is all and for all and in all and everything. Paul's putting his foot down here and he's saying untruthfulness has no place in this family. Here in this family, everyone's equally loved and valued and open to God and one another. Here in, he's like, he's like in this house, you picture him like a, you know, like a matriarch, just like waving the, he's like, he's like, here in this house, no, you're not gonna. Here in this house, God's forgiveness and healing will be freely available to these children. And you will not keep it from your neighbor by lying about yourself and not confessing. So that's, this is Paul's put off the old nature piece. This is Paul's put that old life away. And then he moves into, here's the life we get to put on through the power of Christ. And this moment is gonna bring us to the table. I can't wait for today. I, I believe God has a, a unique thing he wants to do specifically today. We have more time for singing, and you'll see why. This text leads right up to singing. Um, I really believe the Spirit wants to touch hearts this morning and relieve people from depression that is directly anchored in self-deception because we haven't learned how to exist in a community of intimacy and trust. So, so let's read. Here's what we put on. He says, therefore, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And Paul's brilliant here. If you've been paying attention, he has two lists going. One negative that spirals down to lying as the bedrock, and one positive that ramps you up all the way to this forgiveness and love. Forgiveness and love. He's saying because you're loved already in Christ, then put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. And then it ramps up all the way to like, bear with one another. Just bear with one another. I love that language. Paul's writing from prison here to a church he's never seen. He's never seen the Colossians. His buddy Epaphras planted the church in Colossae. And he's like, I've heard so much about you. But if there's one thing I could tell you, I, from prison, behind bars unfairly, here's the one thing I want to ramp this new nature. Th new nature, just put up with each other, guys. <laughs> That phrase in Greek, bear with one another, literally means put up with one another. 
It's like, and it's not just passive. He's also saying not just passively put up with each other, but actively show forgiveness, heap grace on those who don't deserve it. Be reckless. Be reckless with your forgiveness. Be irrational with your forgiveness because the Lord forgave you recklessly to his own hurt on the cross. And right now I have to pause because many minds that have experienced trauma might be asking the question, like, what about the abuser? What, like, what about the untrustworthy person? Um, forgiveness doesn't mean avoiding conflict or staying in an abusive situation. Forgiveness does not mean staying in an abusive situation or anything like that. We are not commanded to trust dangerous people but we are absolutely commanded to forgive them. One, uh, someone really wise once said, I think uh, someone that's still alive, I forget the name, but they said unforgiveness, unforgiveness is like drinking a cup of poison hoping it will kill the other person. And I think that's true. And it's hard, you guys. It can be hard. It can be a dramatic life moment where 20 years leads up to this act of forgiveness you never thought possible, or it can be something a lot more subtle and insidious, like a friendship and enough slander behind their back that you've committed, enough, enough slandering them, you finally find out that you're actually holding on to a form of unforgiveness that's manifesting as gossip that you never really think is wrong because you justify because people join you in it. This happened with me recently. There's someone in my life who I love, absolutely love. And because I'm so relational, we haven't seen each other in a while, and I'm like, I wonder how they're doing. And I'm talking to my wife on the phone, I mean, in, in person. I'm talking to my wife in person over dinner, and I'm like, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder what they're really doing. I wonder what they're really doing. And I started like, <laughs> like just go there, and I started to spin reality in a way that was beyond the borderline of slander. And it was just because of a, of a relationship that was difficult and tense. And I finally realized, like my wife, she goes, hold, hold, hold on, hold on. She's really smart this way. She's like, hold on, call, call him now. You're so relational, Evan, you have to call him or else you will spin reality in a way that is so false and you'll live in a false version of reality. And um, this is why lying does not belong. We can lie to ourselves about people. We can bear false witness against our neighbor because we don't even know we're not forgiving them. Instead, we're just side comments and sarcasm. She's like, call him. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's kind of over the top. I don't know. Maybe it's late. I don't know if he needs my call right now. And I called him. And you guys, it was the best conversation. I'm like, that guy's the best human in the world. <laughs> he's, he's amazing. I can't believe I know him. I can't believe God brought us together and we're friends. And, it's because, and, and yeah, he's, it's because my wife was attuned to what was actually happening, deception and lying. The old nature was creeping in and God was telling her to tell me, put off, put on, put on the new nature, put up with one another. And don't just put up with one another, but heap grace undeservedly on the other. So wouldn't it be credible, incredible, you guys, if this, marked our, if this marked our church? I'm still figuring out how to do this all the time. <laughs> um, 
So, so Paul builds up to this command to forgive one another. Love binds us together, forgiveness and love together to create an environment where healing can happen. Sometimes you don't even know you need healing until someone spirit-filled comes along your way and says, hey, hey, you should probably go to them instead of to me about them right now. And you're like, oh my gosh, that'd be awkward. But I guess that is what Jesus says to do is go directly to them. Honest forgiveness and self-giving love. You guys, this is the real win. This is the win. You ever read a leadership book? It's like, if you want to be a good leader for your organization, define the win, DTW. You ever heard the phrase, define the win? Every good leader makes the win super clear so the organization knows where to aim, right? And so... Paul's defining the win for the church of Jesus here, and the win for Paul, writing a letter to a church he's never been to, which is basically now, like Paul's never been to Park Hill, just like he's never been to Colossae, and so we can receive the letter the same way. It's a broad letter about following Jesus. And he's like, if I could say one thing to Park Hill from prison 2,000 years ago, forgive as the Lord forgave you aggressively. This is what this family celebrates. You can tell what a family views as the win by what they actually cheer for. It's not about, you know, this room. Uh, The win here, all of you, this big number of people, I don't know how many of you are here. It's a full room, not the win. Filling up a room this day and age is not a big deal. An hour and a half on Sunday, that doesn't form you because you have another 166 hours all week where you're looking at a phone and it's forming you there. You're being formed all the time. So here, the the win isn't just this. This is why we're constantly shepherding you to communities where discussion guides and conversation and authenticity leads us to ask the hard questions about what's really going on beneath the surface. So meeting a year-end budget is not the win for Matt Persley, the executive pastor here who looks at the budget every day. Even though we hope we do, we hope you come, we hope this room fills up and we hope the budget is met, but those are not the win. They're not the win. Our win, according to Paul, that we become a community of Jesus' disciples who have put on Christ's nature and do what Jesus did by truth-telling and forgiving one another in an environment of intimacy and trust. This is the win. This is what this family is aiming for. And so to make it really concrete for us, put up that next slide. Um, Park Hill Church, this is our win. It's you and me committing to meet weekly with our communities, eating and praying together, honestly confessing our failures and learning to forgive one another, reminding one another that we are united with Christ. We need to remind each other that. Like we need to actually preach that to each other and we're participating in Jesus's relationship with the Father by the Holy Spirit's power and we're dearly loved by God equally regardless of your past. That's our win. Are you, are, are you in? Like are you, you, in, you into that win? Like let's, let's, so that to us that's the win. And so with that clearly defined, Then we come here on Sunday and we gather around a table, around a bread and a cup that tells the Jesus story. And when we eat the the bread and the cup, we take into our mouths the grain and the grape. They tell our guts a story. And we get the story of Jesus' faithfulness deep into our bones at that point. This is why we gather 
He died for our sin, forgiving us on the cross, rose from the dead to give us access to heaven's power, and he'll come again to heal everything and enact justice. And get this, you guys, Paul ramps up this whole text to say, he say at the end he says, this is why we sing. This is why we sing. This is the purpose for singing worship. It's actually in this text. It's not just, you know, a modern innovation, guitars and songs at church. Check it out, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. There's the in Christ, one body. We're so in Christ that he actually calls us his body. <laughs> That's right there. And then verse, uh, he says, and be thankful. And then verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through podcasts on your commute to work? No, like, how do you teach the story to a church? How does the church get taught the message of Jesus? Is it through seminary? Go to seminary, get a Master of Arts in Theology. It's not. Guess what? It's not even through preaching in this text. I don't know why I'm talking myself out of a job right now. But it, in that text, it doesn't, it doesn't say, let the message dwell richly through sermons. It doesn't even say, it especially doesn't say, let the message dwell in you through debating the Bible on Facebook. Definitely not. Never do that. Ever do that. Ever. It's so ugly. So how do you let the message get down into your marrow? For Paul, you sing, and he's super clear. He repeats himself four times with four synonyms with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Thank you, Paul, for the clarity. We got it. That's so profound. For Paul, for Paul, the way that the message of salvation gets deep into our bones is primarily through singing it together, believing that God is in our midst and we are actually hosting the presence of God in a unique way. We know God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but he's uniquely present. I don't know how or why, I don't have better words for it. I just say he's everywhere and he's present here differently. <laughs> When the church gathers around the cup and the bread and the word and one another through prayer to sing the message back into our bones. This is the command. And look, it's not even, it's not just a Colossians thing. He's a fan of this idea. He says it to the Ephesians too. Look at verse 15 right here on the screen. Ephesians 5.15. He says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but wise. Make the most of every opportunity. The days are evil. Right here, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So what's God's will? Don't get drunk. Awesome. Which leads to debauchery. Makes sense. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, which is another way of just saying, live into union with Christ. Live into the reality. It's already a fact about you but live into that reality, be filled with the Spirit. So, okay, Paul, that's great. I need a concrete, actionable. Okay, here it is. This is what that looks like. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing. Make music from your heart to the Lord in a context of gratitude. Choose gratitude. Choose to lift your voice. You might be tone deaf. That's even better. You know it is. Everybody knows it is. It's way better. 
Paul's basically telling the Ephesians the same thing he tells the Colossians. Don't live that way. Live this way because you're united with Christ. So access that power. Be filled with the Spirit. In other words, sing. The forgiven community of forgivers sings the message of forgiveness down into their marrow. We encourage and empower one another in this way through sung worship, you guys. I'm a charismatic in my core, and I really do believe that the presence of God is manifest in a unique way when his people choose to lean into song in a gathering around his table. This is very, very dear to Paul's heart, and it's dear to Jesus's heart, actually. In the new family of Jesus, next slide, um, forgiveness is inseparable from true worship. Singing worship, forgiving one another, these things are two sides of the same coin. Jesus himself shows us this. How? Well, first he teaches it. Matthew 5, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he says this. This is actually really, it's actually really aggressive, what he says here. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go be reconciled. And then come offer your gift. So Jesus is like, if you're at a church gathering, a religious gathering, but you have an unresolved unforgiveness issue with a boss, brother, sister, parent, coworker, you would be better off leaving the gathering and heading straight to that person to make it right. If they're here with you in the gathering, even better, you don't need to leave, that's awesome. Just process together at the table of Jesus. And if you can, sing side by side with grateful hearts. And as usual, Jesus doesn't just teach it, it comes out of his own life. Matthew 26, out of that same gospel, he says this. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. So imagine sitting at a table where you know one of your friends has a hit out on you. You know that. You already know. And they're at the table. And Jesus says, one of you has a hit out on me. And they're all like, surely you don't mean me. And then verse 25, Judas, the one who would betray him, says, surely not me, Rabbi. Yeah, exactly. The baby's like, that's a lie. <laughs> She's like, uh-uh. So Ju literally, Judas already has a hit on Jesus. He already has a hit out. He's paid for it. And he's like, it isn't me. This is the old nature at its core, lying about your own spiritual state. That's why it doesn't belong. And so he's like, surely not me. And I love Jesus' answer. He's like, you said it. And while they're eating, look what Jesus does next. He takes bread and he gives thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. When he gave thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Did you catch that? Drink from it, all of you, for forgiveness. So he holds out the cup of his own suffering for the forgiveness of his betrayer's sin on the spot. The betrayer doesn't accept the forgiveness. 
He doesn't accept it. He ends up destroying himself, if you know the story of Judas. But look what Jesus does right away. Verse 30, he sings. <laughs> he sings a hymn. In the act of forgiveness, surrounded by his brethren, one of whom would betray, offering forgiveness, Jesus doesn't separate the, act of, the ultimate act of forgiveness from singing. And so it's no wonder why Paul would later turn this story into a theology and say, hey, the body of Christ, forgiving, forgiven sinners in a community is marked by singing the story of Jesus's forgiveness into their bones. This is why we sing. And as a worship leader, this is obviously very close to my heart. My wife and I have been leading worship since we were in high school together. We were high school sweethearts, by the way, and we married at 19 um, we have five kids, those of you that don't know. And we've been leading worship ever since high school. And just letting Jesus use us in that way, in different contexts, in different communities, has been so beautiful to see the beauty of the body of Christ globally as we've traveled and as we've met worship leaders all over the place. A healthy church is a singing church. And so I want to take an opportunity right now and say, Park Hill Church, from the beginning, you've been singers. Like, well done. Like, well done. That is a good sign, a healthy sign. And so as, you, as a pastor, as, a, as an authority here in the church, let me call you higher. Let me call you into a greater awareness and a greater intentionality of actually leaning in to passionate singing. If you're not feeling it, quote unquote, feeling it today or next Sunday or the following Sunday, make a practice of choosing it. Make a practice of choosing gratitude because in the epistles and in the event of the Last Supper, it seems like forgiveness and singing actually empower each other. We're gonna have a time of prayer during the singing today where we're gonna call people to receive forgiveness and also receive power to forgive. And so be asking God, Lord, do you want me to respond? And just receive prayer. Receive prayer for a touch from, from God. And I love about singing. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't feel it. I don't know, I just not that kind of. And uh, I love what Francis Chan said to one of his church members. Someone said, hey, Francis, you know Francis, famous pastor guy. He'll actually be in San Diego in January. It'll be good to go if we can. But um, Francis said to one of his church members, um, he responded to this question. They're like, Francis, I don't know, what do I do? I didn't really like worship today. I didn't really like worship. I wasn't feeling it. And he goes, that's okay, it wasn't for you. You know, like only Francis can. He's like, it wasn't for you, that's great. Like just, and we sing, yes, to bless God's heart, but something we forget is that we actually, I'm singing from, for you. I'm singing the gospel for you. I, I'm singing, and when I remember all I've been forgiven from, uh, I'm set free to forgive others and sing God's faithfulness over them so our united voice can be almost a picture of what's going on in the spirit where all of us are united to Jesus' body, receiving his identity, and we're singing that reality as we're receiving it in the spirit. There's something unique that happens, you guys. I would encourage you to lean into your charismatic self today <laughs> and actually, actually say yes to what God might want to do through an open posture to worshiping him through song. Let the message dwell richly through songs of the Spirit. And the message is forgive. 
If Christianity isn't about forgiveness, it's about nothing. We have a God who became a human who hung on the cross and in his moment of greatest pain, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's why we do what Jesus did. That's why. So let's sing it. Can we stand together?